Hello, I'm Gustavo Ribeiro, editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. Pelé, the greatest player in the history of football, was admitted to the hospital last week. He has been battling colon cancer since last year and now suffers from a respiratory infection. According to some reports, Pelé stopped responding to chemotherapy and has been placed on palliative care to ease his pain. The most recent doctor's report from São Paulo's Albert Einstein Hospital says he is responding well to treatment for the infection, but makes no mention of whether he will resume chemotherapy. Concerns about Pelé's health have spilled over into the World Cup, with players from all over the world voicing their support for the football legend. The Brazilian players held out a banner in his honor after their 4-1 trashing of South Korea on Monday. Former Brazilian coach Carlos Alberto Parreira said in 2017 that when you talk about Pelé, quote, you think about his intelligence, skills, technique, willingness to win, his personality, power, acceleration. He was unbelievable, Parreira said, and that's why he was the number one in the world the best player. In recent decades, the list of so-called new Pelés has been long, but Brazilian players never felt the pressure to compare themselves with Pelé because they agreed he was a step above everyone else. To close the 2022 season of our Explaining Brazil podcast, we're publishing a rerun of an episode about Pelé and how he cemented his status as the best ever to play the game. The episode was in a three-part series to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the 1970 World Cup, when Brazil became the first team with three world titles. The series was produced by Ewan Marshall and sound engineered by myself, Gustavo Ribeiro, and we invite you to listen to the entire series. We will link to it in the show's notes. Paquetti following the number seven. Here's Zeno wherever he goes. Rivalino, watch Pele now. What a beautiful goal from Pele. El Rey Pele. 100 goals for Brazil. Edson Arantes do Nascimento is one of the most famous individuals in the world, but he's not known for the name on his birth certificate. People from all corners of the earth, even if they don't follow football or know nothing about Brazil, they will instantly recognize the name Pelé. He's the greatest player in the history of football, and the 1970 World Cup in Mexico is seen as his finest hour when he led Brazil to its third world title. However, what the tributes to the 1970 World Cup often overlook is the fact that just months before the tournament began, Brazilians were debating whether Pelé was even good enough to play for the national team, and Pelé himself had vowed never to play at another World Cup, believing that the tournament itself was cursed. In today's second part of a three-part special Explaining Brazil series on the 1970 World Cup, we're going to look at just how the king of football got his crown, from early retirement to undisputed soccer legend. I'm Ewan Marshall, editor of the Brazilian Report, and this is how Brazil became the land of football.
Outside of Brazil, we remember Pelé being at his best in the 1970 World Cup in Mexico. But this is largely due to television and the fact that European spectators would rarely see Brazil play more than once every four years, or basically whenever the World Cup came around. I spoke to Tim Vickery, South American football expert, and asked him exactly when Pelé was in his physical and technical prime. He's at his best, 62-63. I had the great privilege of going in depth with this with Tostal a few years ago, and and that was Tostal's view. And uh, you know, I went and looked it, looked up the things on on, on YouTube and so on. And he's just, he's just in another, he's he's on another planet at that at that time. You know, the, and the goal he scores against Mexico in Brazil's debut in '62, an unbelievable goal. And then later that year, he just runs riot against Benfica. Runs riot. You're watching someone who's who's like a different species. Now, it's worth noting that Pelé only plays two matches at the 1962 World Cup, getting injured in the group stages and then seeing his teammates go on and win the trophy without him. In 1966, as we explained in episode one, he hobbled off the field against Portugal as Brazil were knocked out in the first round. So, in that four-year span where he was playing some of his best football, audiences outside of Brazil rarely had the chance to watch him. And that makes us wonder whether Pelé would have ever become so revered around the world if it weren't for the 1970 World Cup in Mexico. And in actual fact, for many years it seemed that he wouldn't be playing for Brazil in 1970, believing that the biggest tournament in the world football was actually cursed. Andrew Downey, foreign correspondent and author of An Oral History of the 1970 World Cup entitled The Greatest Show on Earth, available to pre-order now, he has the story. Pelé, after 1966, he had this thing in his head where he was, he kind of felt jinxed by the World Cup. He, remember, he went to the, the first World Cup in 58 and he was only 17. He never played the first couple of games. So he came in and he did really, really well. Uh, he scored a lot of goals in the in the semi-final and the final. And then he came in 1962 and in the second game in 1962, he was injured. Uh, and he only played one and a bit games. So that put this thing in his head that the World Cup was, was bad luck for him. And in 66, that was kind of cemented. The World Cup was bad luck for him. He was jinxed. He didn't like it. Uh, and after 1966, Pelé took a step back from the Brazil setup. He never played for the, the Seleção for, for a couple of years. And he said for a long time during those two years, I'm not playing another World Cup. I don't want to go. I'm not interested. It's not for me. And it took a lot of persuasion for him to actually come round and, and for him to, to be persuaded to go to, to play in 1970. In the lead-up to 1970, with Pelé convinced to play for Brazil again, he's a different player. Slower, heavier and a bit out of shape, he seems human again. For the first time in his career, Pelé has bad games. Sometimes very bad games and sometimes several in a row. By 70... You know, he's, and he's played a lot of games and uh, he's taken a buffeting and he's, he's bulked up. And th- th- this was one of the things that was seen as a problem going in. Has he put on too much weight? Uh, and uh, what he isn't in uh, to the same extent in, in 70 is that force of nature able to charge forward with the ball. Um, and the, the way that the ball bounces around his foot. It's not like Maradona or Messi where the ball's tied to a left foot, you know, I always see Pelé, the image in my my mind of Pelé is the ball bouncing around, bouncing around his ankles like an obedient puppy. Um, and uh, those surges that he did 
around the, you know, the 62, 63 mark. It's unbelievable. He'd lost some of that. You see one or two, but physic, so physically, he's, he's uh, a little bit on the downside. In Brazil, the debate was over whether he not he should even play. Tostão and Gerson, on the other hand, were the big stars. Playing Pelé was seen as a luxury. Crucially, one of those who was in favour of dropping Pelé was former coach João Saldanha, whose brief yet important time in charge of the national team we covered in episode 1. In fact, after one disappointing exhibition match, Saldanha went as far as saying Pelé was losing his eyesight. Here's Andrew again. Brazil had played a couple of games against Argentina and Pelé had not been very, had not been very good. Saldanha said he was going to leave him out the next game. And there was a big sort of kerfuffle and people were asking why. And Saldana alleged that, that, that Pele was, was blind. Uh, or not blind, myopic, is what he said. He had a bad sight. And that was, it, it was immediately after he did this that he was sacked. Now, depending on who you talk to, some people will say, listen, the dictators could not imagine a, a team, a Brazil team without Pele. And that's one of the, that was a factor a big factor in, in, in second Saldana. And it's also that some people say, listen, Saldana knew that he was going to be fired and he needed to try and create a, a, a scandal or he wanted to get fired. That's what some people said. Saldana wanted to get fired. He knew that things weren't going well. He knew that he was under pressure. Uh, he was uncomfortable in the role or for whatever reason. A lot of people have this, have this story or have created this story that Saldana was involved in some kind of self-sabotage and that was part of the whole self-sabotage. But he even went further than saying that Pelé was was blind. He said that Pelé had some like had some uh, life-threatening disease. That was what he said. And he never said what it was. Uh, but it really it really affected Pelé. Pelé was really, really worried about it because he didn't know what was going on. And Pelé went the next day, he went to the Sepe Day and said, listen, what the hell are you talking about? I want to see all my medical reports. And they produced all the medical reports for him to, to prove that he was okay. But it was a, it was a, it was a big deal. Uh, and, and Pele, you know, was really worried about it. And, and it created this, Pele never really forgave Saldana for that because he had, the two of them had gotten on fine beforehand. But Pele never really understood why Saldana did this. And, and it was a, a, a real kind of, you know, a real, a personal thing for Pelé, and, and it created this big rift between them that never really healed. While shrouded in hearsay, this story is crucial to Pelé's success in 1970. His teammates have always said that he rarely reacted to criticism or held grudges, but there was something about Saldana's claims that left him raging and desperate to prove a point. And thanks to Brazil's rigorous physical preparation for the 1970 World Cup, Pelé arrived in Mexico as a man on a mission. He goes into the tournament a different player, slower and less mobile, but strong and with a spatial awareness that no one has ever seen. It's Brazil's first time out in the 1970 series. They failed early in 1966 because Pelé failed. Now here he is again, four years later, four years older. Everyone waits to see whether the magic is still with him. Now, in sport and other activities, I'm sure you've heard of the concept of the zone. You know, where everything just seems to fall into place naturally. Like a pool player who just knows the right angle he has to hit the ball to send it in the pocket. Or a basketball player who just makes every shot almost instinctively. 
Now that zone, that's Pele in 1970. In all six matches on the way to the trophy, he never once leaves the zone. And in Brazil's opening match of the tournament, a 4-1 win over Czechoslovakia, Pelé eyes the chance to silence the critics once and for all. From within Brazil's own half, over 50 metres from goal, he spots the opposing keeper off the line and he pings a ball an immense distance towards the net. The entire stadium thinks it's gone in, but it passes just wide of the mark. I like to think of this as his own personal revenge, showing João Saldanha and everyone back home that, you know, his eyesight was just fine. Thank you very much. Arguably, Pelé's most genius moment of the tournament came a few days later in a key game against England, creating what our guest Tim Vickery calls the goal that won Brazil the World Cup. That's after the break. Have you been enjoying the World Cup so far? We have a free ebook for you to understand everything about experiencing the world's biggest sporting event in the land of football. Just visit the special banner on Brazilian.report and find out why the World Cup is so special to Brazil. And if you enjoy our content, consider becoming a member of our Buy Me A Coffee page. You can offer one to five coffees to our staff every month and get exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, the ability to ask us questions directly, as well as a special shout-out here on our podcast. And today we'd like to thank our existing Buy Me A Coffee members, Orlando Black, Steve Knapp, Aaron Berger, James Coney, Kars Vresvik, Elasdair Townsend, Peter Abrahamson, Michael Fryer, Miller Renacido, Jim Awofadeju, David Dixon, Felipe Saito, José Jose Stankovic, Gabriela Graf Innes, Emerging Market Muser, Yarden Iftah, Tonica Thompson, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, Anna Lund, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. You can join them and support independent journalism. Just head to buy me a coffee and subscribe. And starting next episode, you can hear your name on Explaining Brazil. If you cannot support us on a monthly basis, you can still tip us a cup of coffee every now and then to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. Head to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. Brazil versus England. The winners of the World Cup in 58 and 62 against the reigning champions. This was an epic match that may well go down as the most important game in World Cup history. Let's let Tim Vickery set the scene. Well, it's a game that's absolutely crucial in, in, in two senses. One is in the sense of what happens in the tournament. Um, because uh, Brazil winning that game, Brazil stayed in Guadalajara and they played Peru and Uruguay and then the final. England, because they lost that game, had to travel 
played the Germans, took the Germans into extra time. So they've tied out the Germans. And then the Germans play the Italians in a semi and take that to extra time and ties out the Italians. And it means the final is only a game for the, the first half. You know, after half time, there's absolutely no doubt he's going to win. The first half is equal. I think Italy have, have uh, maybe have more shots than Brazil first half, but you know, you know, then they're not going to last the 90. So it, it is a game with an absolutely crucial bearing on what happens in the World Cup. But beyond that, because um, both sides go into the the, the, the England Brazil match, because it, it's something that stands outside the context of the World Cup. Both sides go into that World uh, that that match with with something to prove, um, especially to each other. Uh, Brazil. Or was it just a, a one-off? What, did, did they have just that one generation? You know, that, that it was the same side that won in '58 and '62. Was, was that it? Um, are they? Are they? Are they still? Are they? Can they be that force again? We don't know. They, they weren't very good in '66, and some of those players, you know, your Gersons and your Jazinhas and your Tostones and so on, some of them were around then. So uh, are, they, are they up to it? Are they? Are they as good as the '58 generation? We don't know. We're going to find out. And from the England point of view, because of the way that that World Cup was organised, and the organisation of that World Cup is the start of Havelange's campaign to unseat Europe in FIFA. Now, because uh, the organisation of the 66 World Cup manages to alienate not only South America, but all of Asia and all of, all of Africa as well. So, you know, it's... And uh, one of the things that's worse about that World Cup is the refereeing. Almost all the referees are European. I think there's only one knockout game that's done by a non-European. Um, and referees are crap. And it's so the, that, that uh, much-disputed um, third goal from England in the final becomes a symbol of um, that World Cup, both the organisation and the, the, uh, the incompetence of, of, of the referees. So the England side there under, under a cloud, you know, you only won it because you were at home. And the whole thing was, was set up for you so they have to prove to a latin american audience that no that they are they're a team in their own right a, a, a great team in their own right this is truly a historic game of football with both sides at their best in a tight yet thrilling encounter there are chances at either end and the momentum is constantly pulsing from one side to the other every time you watch the game it feels like the result is going to come up different now the only goal of the game comes on the 59th minute and for my money, it's the greatest goal Brazil has ever scored. Tostão picks up the ball on the left side of the penalty area, jostling and juggling his way past three defenders. Picking up the pace now, putting some pressure, real hard pressure. On the defense, Putting the ball through Bobby Moore's legs in the process. And now far from goal, with his back turned to the penalty box. Tostão scoops out a sweeping cross that lands perfectly at the feet of Pelé in what is arguably the only 30 centimetres of space in a packed goal area. Pelé, in the zone, instinctively rolls the ball to the right without looking, directly into the path of the onrushing Jairzinho, who brings it forward and pumps the ball into the England net with a shot resembling a blast from a shotgun. In his legendary book, Football in Sun and Shadow, Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galliano described the goal as England's steel citadel 
being melted by the hot breeze blowing from the south. It's a magnificent game. And uh, both sides come off the field having won, totally won the respect of the other. Symbolised, of course, by the, 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 those wonderful photos of, uh, of the embrace between Bobby Moore and, and Pelé. The embrace Tim references here was immortalised by the Daily Mirror's John Varley, who spotted the two great swapping shirts at the end of the match. It's the perfect finale for such a momentous match. It's respect, adoration, camaraderie, and most importantly, it's the passing of the baton. Brazil had beaten the world champions. Who could stop them now? If you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a 5-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it will help us reach a broader audience. Or better yet, sign up for the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your subscriptions is what fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. Thanks to our subscribers, we have been able to cover Brazil and Latin America extensively and for our work, we have amassed several awards and nominations. In order to keep doing that work, we need your support. Go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. Explaining Brazil will actually not be back next week. I see you in 2023. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy holidays, actually. Bye. Brazil, meu amor.